Hear the word of the Lord from Romans 11, 33 through 36. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I am Rob Spikestra, one of the paid elders here at Sacred City. My title is Pastor of Discipleship. The payment for preaching is a sweatshirt. Here's my sweatshirt. And I know you're all jealous. You've always wanted a burning bush sweatshirt. Well, I got one. Most summers, my wife and I make a pilgrimage to Montana. My sister and brother-in-law own a house in the mountains in Montana, and you can imagine what that looks like. Uh, it really does look like a cabin, a really big cabin. And one of the favorite things we do is we go on a hike, a favorite hike. We continue to repeat this hike. It's to Lost Lake, Lost Lake Trail. It's in the Beartooth Mountains. Um, east of Yellowstone National Park. And the trail follows alongside a stream. And that stream is, as you can imagine, in a valley. And that valley is on um, both sides, are, are, is a mountain ridge, uh, ridges really, uh, that make their way up into the continental divide. And the trail, because it follows the river, is fairly um, mild and elevation gain. If we followed that trail all the way up to the end, I, my understanding is that there are a, a series of lakes up there. But we never go there, but rather we veer off, we take a side trail which takes us to, as the name states, a lake that is hidden, thus lost lake, that is not directly connected to that main river. This lake is hidden by a force, forest on three sides. And so if you can just imagine you're, you're going up this trail, you really can't see much in front of you. Uh, you can see pretty much the trail. You're trying to you know, make your way through the, through the, on the trail, through the rocks and such, and forest all around you. But then all of a sudden, you come out of this forest. You come around the corner, and there before you is this lake. It's probably only about um, 100 meters wide, but pretty long. And, and it's backed up against a granite cliff. A granite cliff that, as again, you can just imagine, you're walking through, you're going down, you're looking down, you're going around, you come around the corner, you look up, there's a lake, and then all of a sudden you see this granite cliff and your eyes just keep going up and up and up because it's part of this incredible mountain. It's part of this range of which we have been paralleling the whole way up this trail. We go there to sit and gaze and let all the problems and complaints of our little busy life kind of tumble out of our hearts and minds. Because when you sit there and gaze at this incredible mountain, there are two things that happen. First, you physically feel really small. And then secondly, your lifespan becomes inconsequential because you realize that you're probably going to be there 30 to 45 minutes. There's probably other people during the day that have come up here to this trail, on this trail, up to this hidden lake, Lost Lake, and they're going to be there 35, 40, uh, uh, 35 uh, to an hour uh, in time. And, and, and and then you realize that that's today and it's people have been doing this all week and really they've been doing this all season. And then you begin to think about, or maybe we could personify the cliff for a moment and the cliff is looking down and the cliff sees not only that year, but the seasons before that and not only those seasons, but the decades before that, not only decades before that, but the centuries that have gone on, not only the centuries, but the millennia of people who have discovered this lost lake 
And all of a sudden, your lifespan of 50 plus years feels pretty small, inconsequential. Soli deo gloria, the fifth of the five solas provides such a perspective. What is gonna become obvious is that when you embrace the first solas, sola deo gloria translated to God alone be glory becomes the foregone conclusion. So here's what I want to prove today from this text we just had read for us. The glory of God alone is the worst and best truth for humanity. The glory of God alone is the worst and the best truth for humanity. And the way I want to prove that today is, first of all, uh, by asking this question, why does Paul, in our text, come to the conclusion, end of verse 36, why does he say, to him be glory forever, amen? And then we will look at why this is the worst truth for us. And then we will look and finish with why it is also the best truth for humanity. So let's pray and ask God for help. <laughs> okay, Father, here we are. Before your glory. And our job, my job, Father, is I'm supposed to help describe that glory and their job, my job, uh, is to try to assimilate, try to assimilate that into my, my, our minds and into our hearts so that we might understand your glory a little bit better and get a little bit better perspective of who we are. Father, uh, we are not capable. But we thank you. We thank you that we are not left alone, but that you have given us your word and you've given us your spirit. And so, Father, our hope is in you that you will do something today in our hearts, in our lives, that we will see your glory in a better way. We'll see ourselves in light of that glory. And, Father, that we will rejoice. There is really happy news in these verses. But, God, make our, our hearts happy, please, because we can't do that. Only you can do that. And so we're asking for help again. We pray these things in Christ's name for your glory. Amen. So let's begin here to look at to him be glory, uh, to him be glory forever. Or the words in the fifth sola, soli deo gloria, translated glory to God alone. Now, Paul was delayed uh, from coming to Rome, and so he wrote this letter we call Romans to the church in Rome to explain thoroughly the gospel. So early on, he, he writes these words. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Then within the first 11 chapters, he explains the good news of how one can be right with God. And in that explanation, he addresses a number of potential questions that possibly the Roman readers might have. And one of those potential questions was this. What about the Jews? The reason this was a question of great concern was that for the most part, the Jews had rejected Jesus as their Messiah. And the reason that that simple question potentially was on the Roman mind was because God's story was one hinged on a promise made to a man, the man Abraham. God had promised to Abraham that through him, through his descendants, they would be blessed. And not only would they be blessed, but the world would be blessed through him. And the world would be blessed through him through someone who would come through a Messiah, through the Messiah. Of course, we know who that is, Jesus the Christ. But the Jews rejected the plan. And so the question for the Roman readers is, well, if the Jews in their rejection has somehow thrown off God's plan, what about us? I mean, he makes promises, but can he keep his promises? 
Or will he just simply uh, also be thwarted by us? And so what Paul does in beginning in chapter nine is he addresses that concern. And so I just want you to listen uh, to the dismay beginning at verse one of chapter nine, uh, dismay that Paul had for his people, the Jews. He says this, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. And then he thinks, how can I get this down to help them understand just what great anguish I have for him? Well, he thought of the worst thing that could ever happen to him so that the Jews might accept Jesus. So he says this in verse three. Uh, So he says, for I could wish that myself were a curse and cut off from Christ. If that was possible, but it wasn't. For the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong some amazing things. The adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. They had all of the advantages of what it means to be God's chosen people. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. It was God overall, blessed forever. And he ends, amen. But then look what he says, next verse. But it is, as, it is not as though the word of God has failed. <laughs> yeah, they've rejected the Messiah, but it's not as though the word of God has failed. And then he goes on to explain how the rejection of the Jews was part of God's plan for the furthering of the gospel into the rest of the world to save the Gentiles. And so it's at the end of this glorious explanation of the surprising work of the grace of God that God works in ways that we can't even get. We would say, wrong, bad plan, no good. I don't get it. I don't get you, God. And he's, oh, that's my plan. <laughs> uh, he says, so in the redemption of humanity, he, he works a grace that is in contrast now to his great sorrow and unceasing Paul then strikes out in his praise with these words. He says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. (laughs) Well, let's break this down and uh, this praise down and As I do this, what I'm attempting to do is I'm attempting to describe for you this massive mountain of God's glory. So Paul concludes, first of all, glory to God alone because of the infinite riches of his wisdom and knowledge. Verse 33, he makes two exclamations there. Number one, it's this. It is out of the depth of God's riches that God's wisdom and knowledge are found. See, it's grammatically possible and probable that we ought to translate this this way. The depth of the riches, both of God's wisdom and knowledge. So it's out of the depth of God's treasury that we find Wisdom and knowledge. Now, wisdom is this. Wisdom is God's ability to select the best means for the attainment of the highest goal. In other words, out of all the possibilities of how God was to redeem humanity, there was no better plan. And that wisdom then kind of comes down into, uh, into the, the way the world works. That wisdom comes down into your life. God's wisdom, he selects the best means for the attainment of the highest goal. There's no better possibility. That's wisdom. And then knowledge. Knowledge is God's insight into the very essence of things, of people, of situations, ideas, and so forth. It's his omniscience. So it's out of the depth of his treasury that true wisdom and knowledge is found. But look at that second exclamation there at the second part of verse 33. It says, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. God's judgments and ways are inaccessible. 
They're inaccessible to us. Judgments here are more than God's just judicial decisions. It's part of that, but it's more than that. It's a reference to his decrees, his decisions, his determinations in his activities within the world, particularly within salvation. And then his ways emphasizes the observable activities he works out in the world. So in one sense, you could see, think it this way. He makes decisions, he makes determinations, he makes de- de- decrees, and then we get to see how that works itself out, the ways of which it works itself out. We can observe it. And frankly, he says his judgments and his ways are inaccessible to us. Think about any one situation that you might be in. Um, How little do you really know what's going on? Now, we think we know a lot. So first of all, we we think, yeah, I've got some knowledge. I I know what's going on here. And we think, you know, I do have some wisdom. Uh, I've learned along the way. And so I've got some principles that I can apply to this particular situation. I think I know what's going on within within the situation. But what we but we, what we forget is that we only have one perspective of what is actually going on. We only have some knowledge of what is happening. And we know this about ourselves, that even that knowledge we know is eh, maybe not completely clear. And we know that our wisdom is within us, which is flawed. And so we know, well, I, I bring wisdom as best I possibly can into the situation. But what we do is we have the hubris or the pride to say, I know exactly what's going on here. <laughs> no, you don't. We have very little knowledge. And so we don't have good judgment. And many times, because we don't have good judgment, our ways are foolish. This is why James 1.19, he says, be quick to hear and slow to speak And slow to anger, for the anger of man does not accomplish the purposes of God. Because we begin to think about that situation, and what he's saying is, is you have no idea what's all going on here. You have a very small idea of what's happening in this situation, only from the perspective, only from the knowledge that you particularly have. But there's a whole bunch of things going on right now. And in going on right now, there's, there's wisdom that needs to be applied, and you don't got it. And so he says, don't just start speaking. Listen, get more understanding, get more knowledge. You can see how this goes. But what we do is we speak and then we get angry and then what happens is our anger, it does not accomplish the purposes of God whatsoever within the situation that we're thinking about. Uh, But not with God. No, it's out of the riches of his wisdom that he has wisdom and knowledge and through that uh, knowledge and wisdom, uh, there are accurate judgments and they are uh, uh, are ways that are inaccessible to us. And so if you determined on your own to search for God's plan of redemption, you would go on a fruitless search. It would be like trying to track the wake of someone who had swam in the ocean days earlier. Impossible. Because that's what the word means, inscrutable. It means this, literally, footprints that are untraceable. So that the psalmist writes Psalm 77, verse 19. He says, your way, speaking of God, your way, God, was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. It's like God walking on the water. And trying to see his footprints. So great is the working out of God's wisdom and knowledge and his decrees and decisions and determinations that they are simply inaccessible to humanity. Glory to God alone because of the infinite riches of his wisdom and knowledge. But let's keep breaking it down. Paul concludes, secondly, glory to God alone because of his self-sufficiency. See, verses 34 and 35 give us the reason for why God's ways are inaccessible to humanity. Verses 34 and 35. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been, or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Short answer... No one. 
No one. No one. He is independent of our advice. And so what Paul does is he lifts the question almost word for word from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13, which says this, whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? No one. No one knows the mind of God. Now, we've all met people in whom we have correctly considered wise and knowledgeable, but they haven't always been wise. There was a time when they did not have wisdoms, but over time, learning God's word, the fear of God, applying truth to their experience made them wise. But God has never had to run his plans by someone to see if this is a good idea or not. Finite humanity is not in the position to tell God how he ought to run his universe. And if you have done so, you are out of place. You are out of line. You've lost perspective. This is the God of whom we deal with. He is independent of our advice. And number two, he owes us nothing. He owes us nothing. Again, Paul uh, lifted uh, verse 35 from Job 41, verse 11, where, he, where God asks, who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. So what does this mean? Well, this means that God is sovereign, self-sufficient, and free from any obligation. So that the, within the context of Romans 9 through 11, he owes the Jew nothing. He owes the Gentile nothing. All humanity is dependent on him. See, the word in our passage there in verse uh, 35, the word given literally means give in advance. It has the idea of someone anticipating what God needs and giving it to him in advance with the idea of calling in a favor later on when it's needed. But none of us are in that position. God owes no one anything, let alone salvation, he is not in debt to anyone. And God alone, glory to God alone because of his self-sufficiency. Now back to our passage, verse uh, 36. Why is it that no one can function as God's counselor? Why is it that no one can give him that which warrants a later repayment? Well, Paul concludes, three, glory to God alone because he is the source, the means, and the goal of all things. Look at verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. So what is included in all things? All things. He's the creator who is the source of all things. He is the agent through which all creation exists. He is the goal of all of his creation. And it is this massive mountain of a God of whose shadow we are under. And this is the worst of truths for humanity. Let's consider the season we're about to enter into. Intuitively, um, hardwired kind of into our soul, we know the importance of giving thanks. Uh, we, we create an entire holiday around it, believing that we ought to stop working one day of the year, that we ought to intentionally actually reflect one time a year on what we are thankful for, that we ought to put a one-day pause on the other 364 days of complaints. So naturally kind of come right out of our, heart, out of our hearts, right through our mouths. 
Intuitively, we know the importance of giving thanks, and so one of the first practical lessons we hope our children learn is to say thank you. When they receive a, a service or when they receive maybe a gift, whether it be a stranger, a neighbor, a friend, or a family member, we just know that this is something they ought to learn. And so coming upon Christmas, there are some of you who have younger children and there is a moment of anxiety wondering how your young child is going to respond when they open the present on Christmas Day to discover that grandfather and grandmother gave them socks. And we feel that internal heat rising within our brains as the seconds tick away, hoping we hear those magical words from our child's mouth until we can no longer stand it, about eight seconds, about as long as it takes to ride a bull successfully. And finally we blurt out, what do you say? What do you say? What do you say? Intuitively, we know we ought to be thankful to others who have given us good things. And so Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, these words, he says, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? See, every one of our stories here are unique and yet they are similar. Similar in that we have received good things like life and breath and abilities and skills and a myriad of other things. And our lives are being sustained and protected beyond measure every single hour right now. And it is true of every life in this building and it is true of every life outside of these walls. And it is done so that every life might give God all the glory alone by simply saying, thanks. So Paul, as he was trying to show why we have this kind of mortal mess within our hearts, he takes us up on this issue of our lack of thanks that we're all guilty of in Romans chapter one. Romans chapter one. If you have your Bibles, turn there. We're gonna look at verse, verse 18, start at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Now go back to Lost Lake with me for a minute. It is a massive granite cliff that makes you feel small and inconsequential in terms of lifespan. And then to think that this is one mountain connected to a ridge of mountains, which is only one ridge of many ridges of a mountain range, which is one mountain range of many ranges that are connected to uh, other ranges, called the Rocky Mountains, which is one range of several other ranges in North America, of which is only one continent of many continents with their own ranges, which is a world that is one planet within a solar system, which is on the edge of a galaxy made up of many solar systems, of which is one galaxy of a mind-boggling number of galaxies. But what do we do with that truth? What do we do with that knowledge? Verse 18, we suppress it. For what can be known about God is plain, but what do we do? We suppress it. What could we learn from what we see? 
his invisible attributes, verse 20, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So that, continue on there, verse 20, so they are without excuse. For although they know God, they did not honor him as God, and look at this, or give thanks to him. I'm without excuse. You're without excuse. We are out without excuse. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. And so what we've done is rather than turning our attention to God and giving him thanks and glory, we've turned all the attention back to ourselves. The image of mortal man and all of our works. And so as Paul is explaining, how do we get right with a God who we have offended and whom we have failed to give thanks. He builds up this bad news and says for this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The worst of truths for humanity is the glory of God alone for no one has given him what he deserves. So if this is the case, why does Paul end our passage with that singular word? If the grandeur of God's glory is so great that it is expected that we give him thanks and we have failed to do so, why does Paul top off his praise with amen? <laughs> so be it. This is great news. <laughs> he seems to be happy with God's glory. He gives an enthusiastic personal approval. Amen. Why is this the glory of God alone? Why is it a praise? Well, because the glory of God alone is the best truth for humanity. How can this be? How, how can it be the worst truth and at the same time the best news? Well, here's how it can be. God has chosen to glorify himself by redeeming sinners like us. God has chosen to glorify himself by redeeming complainers like us. See, remember the question of verse uh, 34, go back to our passage there. He says, for who has known the mind of the Lord? And the answer to that is, no one has known the mind of the Lord. So God, in his goodness, gave us his mind. And that's amazing. So we, we, we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, chapter 1. 1 Corinthians, no, sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And that's just uh, the next book after Romans. So if you got your Bibles there, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, look at verse 11. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Sola Scriptura. <laughs> Scripture alone. 
See, this is a reference to the very fact that the one who is saying this is apostle and the apostle and the apostles, God had given the mind of God to the apostles in such a way that they could write down God's plan. Plan for redemption. And not only that, look at this, verse 14. Not only that, he has given the Holy Spirit to those who hear the word of God. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges, as is the person who has the Spirit of God in them, the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understand the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? He's again lifted out of idea. Isaiah, he's lifted that same verse here that we had there in our praise uh, passage. And so this is what he says to that. But we have the mind of Christ, <laughs> the Holy Spirit. Scripture alone. And so it is out of the depth of God's riches that we receive wisdom and knowledge. And it is in this wisdom and knowledge through the scriptures alone that we have then this news. Sola gratia, grace alone. Turn in your Bibles now to Ephesians chapter one, verse seven. Ephesians chapter one, verse seven. In him, Speaking of Jesus Christ, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the, here's our word again, the riches of his grace. Grace alone. To which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. There we have sola scriptura once again. A truth that was previously unknown, God's plan previously unknown, now being made known through the apostles, gave it to us that we might know the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in where? In Christ, Christ alone. Solus Christus. Or keep going, chapter three, and we're gonna look at verse seven, chapter three of Ephesians, look at verse seven. Of this gospel, Paul writes, I was made a minister according to the gift of, here we go again, God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable, there's the word again, riches, riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things. There we go again. We needed God to reveal his plan for us. That which was inaccessible to us, he now made accessible to us through the power of the Holy Spirit, giving us sola scriptura, scripture alone. Look at this. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the, to the uh, rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. It's like this. That mountain... That cliff, that mountain, that range, those ranges, that continent, that earth, that solar system, that galaxy, that galaxy of many galaxies is not enough to give God glory. So he says, I got a, I got a good idea. God says, <laughs> I'll redeem those sinners and that will show people my glory. General revelation is not enough. God says, I got a better plan. I'm going to redeem people who are bitter complainers, who are sinners. I'm going to redeem them to myself. I'm going to show them the riches of my grace. <laughs> but not only is he going to show them, he's going to show who. Look what he says there, verse 10 again. He's going to let that manifold wisdom God now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Beyond our sight, spiritual rulers and authorities are going to marvel. The angels are going to marvel at the glory of God. Verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in, there we go, Sola Christus again, Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So out of the riches comes the wealth and treasure, the person of Jesus Christ in whom we have access. And you notice there at the end of there, verse 12, uh, apprehension or fear. No, he says that we have access with confidence, access to the Father. How? Sola fide, faith 
alone in the verse 12, through our faith in him, in Jesus Christ. So it's out of the depth of God's riches that we receive God's wisdom and knowledge. The glory of God alone reveals that this mountain of God whose wise judgments and ways are inaccessible, who is self-sufficient and owes us nothing, who is the source and means and goals of all things, that he is kind and longs to glorify himself through the redemption of sinners. Do you want to glorify God today? Sinner, trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. His glory, he wants to glorify himself through you turning from your sin, turning from your way, and trusting what Christ did for you on the cross, and that is that he died for your sins and rose again in order to give you life, and all you have to say is, I want that. That's all you have to do, and it gives him glory. And you join creation in giving him glory, glory alone. God's glory is the best truth for humanity. Secondly, not only does he redeem sinners, but God has chosen to glorify himself by putting us on his restoration plan. Putting on, a, on us his restoration plan. See, you, you think about it for a minute. Why is it that when we, get, when we place faith in Jesus Christ, why does he just take us right up into heaven? Because his plan is to bring glory to himself through your restoration in this sin-filled world. He's got a better plan. And so like any restoration project, the aim is to return what is being restored back to its original glory. So in Genesis 1, we learn that we were created for a God-sized purpose, that we were created to be image bearers of his glorious reign over the universe. But what happened? What happened to that God-sized opportunity, that God-sized purpose? Well, Genesis 3 reveals that when we rebelled and determined to become a law unto ourselves, all of the spiritual air was just sucked out of our hearts and our God-sized purpose shriveled down into ourselves and so self became the universe. But in Christ... He is restoring us back to our original purpose. So, here are eight amazing implications. Oh, my land, eight. How long is this going to take? Not very long. Number one, you can start all these sentences with this to glory to God alone. Glory to God alone. Number one, glory to God alone gives purpose and meaning to everyday life. Purpose and meaning to everyday life. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 ends this way. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God so that the smallest of acts and the most unnoticed callings have universal size, purpose, and meaning. Has universal size, purpose, and meaning. Number two, glory to God alone saves us from our narcissistic self Glory to God alone saves us from our narcissistic self. See, again, you think about how small a space you occupy in this universe. Sin is a life lived for that tiny little space in the universe. Some, you heard that word, some of our health problems today, mental, mental health problems today, are a result of an, as of an obsessive interest in one's emotional and physical self. And so we live in such an upside-down culture that the so-called experts believe the answer to mental health is to glorify this obsession. You're just not making much about yourself. You've got to make more about yourself. Or we need to make more about them. No, we are made for someone much greater than self. The God of the universe. Number three, third implication, glory to God alone opens up the horizons of life. God calls us to pray and to think and to dream and to plan and to work, not to be made much of, but to make much of him through our life. Four, Glory to God alone unleashes our creativity. Glory to God alone unleashes our creativity. 
See, it's not by coincidence that the post-Reformation J.S. Bach considered the greatest composer of classical music, probably of all music, because of its complex complexity. He signed all of his original manuscripts with the initials SDG. Soli Deo Gloria. Some of the finest Christians in history have applied the lordship of Christ to their own callings and served as leaders in their various fields to the glory of God. Rembrandt, art. Milton, poetry. Althesius, political theory. Grotius, international law. And Adam Smith, economics. Smitten by the glory of God, their lives were lived for that glory. So can you imagine what it can do for you in your particular calling, whatever you do? as small as it may seem. How could you do that in such a way that would be to the glory of God? Implication number five, glory to God alone gives direction when life doesn't meet your expectations. Anybody been there? (laughs) Glory to God alone gives direction when life doesn't meet your expectations. You thought it was gonna go one way and it went another way. See, remember Thomas. Thomas thought that, that, that this Jesus was going to be in this kingdom, but when it did not happen and he died, his expectations were destroyed. And so he thought that following Jesus was over and done with. And so when the disciples came to Thomas and said, Thomas, we've seen the risen Savior, he said, No, you didn't. I don't believe it. Show me. I need a map. The map is, you need to show me his holes in his hands. I need to put my fingers there. I need to put, uh, put my hands into the, 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 what I saw, and that is the, the gash in the side of his ribs. I'll, once I put my fingers there, then I'll do it. So Jesus returns again, and Thomas is all eyes. He enters into the presence with the disciples. Thomas is there. He's all eyes, and Jesus is all grace. And it's at that point when Jesus gave him what he needed, that Thomas said, my Lord and my God. And that is the direction that we need when God doesn't meet our expectations. My Lord, your Lord, I trust you. You're my God, I worship you. So I don't get you, God. You've totally blown my expectations, but I trust you and I will obey you as my God. Glory to God alone gives direction when life doesn't meet your expectations. Number six, glory to God alone gives reason for the unreasonable like worship and prayer and obedience. See, getting up on Sunday morning for a couple of hours is not reasonable if you are looking to get ahead in this life financially, physically, and materially. So you're not making any money right now. And most of us could have used a couple more hours of sleep. And materially, we could use the time to get a few more chores done. And you may walk out of here thinking, I got nothing today out of the gathering, like all of us do sometime along the way. But glory to God alone gives reason. It gives reason for being here. And it is also true of prayer and obedience. We pray and we obey, not because we reasonably get anything out of it. We pray and do and obey to the glory of God alone. And then number seven, very much closely related to this one, is glory to God alone makes sense to the unsensible. See, many times we cannot sense what God is doing. Our physical and spiritual capacities are simply limited to make sense of God's decisions and ways. Glory to God alone makes sense of those moments. And then number eight, glory to God alone gives perspective to our troubles. Gives perspective to our troubles. It's like sitting and gazing at a granite cliff that towers massive over your being and you're small in stature and lifespan. But unlike an inanimate rock formation, it is God who loves and cares and says, 
to your troubles. I've got this. When we first sinned, Adam and Eve declared independence from God in whom they were dependent upon. When all of creation at that moment groaned, God said, I've got this. When you first sinned, declared independence from God in whom you were dependent upon, God said, I've got this. On the night he was betrayed, he broke bread and said, this is my body given for you. And then he poured some wine. He said, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. What was he saying? I've got this. I've got this. I've got this. Father, thank you. We thank you for your glory. We thank you, Father, that you would be so kind. That you would give us your word. That you would actually write a book for us. And that you would give us your mind telling us just what we need to know and telling us a lot of things we don't need to know. Father, you were kind and poured out your grace upon us by giving us your word and in your word showing us your solution to our mortal mess, your son, Christ alone. Father, we thank you that our Lord and God took our sins, his body, and he died for those sins. He paid the penalty. He took your wrath for all of our complaints, all the other sin that we have committed and will commit, and he died. And we thank you, Father, for the grace of faith that you give to us to trust in that good news. The good news, Father, that your glory is actually our joy. And you want us to now come into that joy by faith in Christ alone. So Father, our collective prayer here is for those of us who have come to that place, you've brought us to that place, our collective prayer up to you right now is would you give that faith to someone here this morning, that they would today trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and that as they come down to enjoy this little meal that we remind ourselves again of the body and blood of Jesus Christ, that they would enjoy it in a whole new way, that they would enjoy it knowing that they're giving you glory. And Father, we pray that for the rest of us, who you now are restoring, we pray that you would take your glory and take what you, you've shown us today and in all of our situations and circumstances that are also very unique to us and all of our troubles and our problems, Father, we pray that we would see and hear again, you say, I've got this. I've got it. I love you. I've got it. We thank you. We pray these things in Christ's name for your glory. Amen.